You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. But our task for this morning is to look at these final verses of Revelation chapter 11. And so I'd like to begin our time just by reading these few verses together. Uh, let's, let's hear them. Let's hear the reading of God's word. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped him. They worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. The topic that we have to consider this morning, I've summarized just by saying this is the glorious reign of Christ. Now, I hesitate to say something like that because that is a lot of really, really uh, Christian-y words all stuck together. What does it mean for something to be glorious? We don't talk about things to be glorious all the time. We don't talk about reigns. We don't talk about ruling. That's not something that we think about. But this, even though it's familiar, even though some of us might even recognize words like uh, the the, uh, reign of Christ here, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. I always think of the hallelujah chorus when I hear that verse. I can hear the voices singing it. But we shouldn't let this being familiar keep it from speaking to us. We should not be able to to say this or read this lightly. We should instead be shaken by it. You know, there are always times where things happen where some crisis comes to your life. Uh, sometimes they're really severe things. Sometimes they're, they're smaller things. I know uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, a significant number of people in our city experienced power outages. And you know if you've experienced a power outage. If you, that wasn't you, you probably know someone who did, and you probably have before. You know that that's something that causes you to have to put everything else on hold. Because you need to figure out, well, this food's not going to stay cold. What are we going to do? If we're not, not going to have light, what are we going to do? If the weather is going to be too hot, what's going to happen? How are we going to survive? Everything else gets put on hold until we figure out what's going on with the the current crisis. And maybe you've been in a place in your life before. Maybe you're there right now where it just feels like one crisis after another. One, something happens. Something else happens. Something else happens. And you're just trying to sleep and and maybe you get a phone call from someone who never calls this late and you get a sense of dread. Well, those moments, 
that shaking of our lives, that everything is about to change sort of feeling is the feeling that we should have when we read a text like this. When we think about the reign of Christ breaking in fully and finally and completely, that's how we should see it. We should be shook. And so that's my hope this morning that as we consider this, we'll be able to see these words in a new or in a different way, in the way that they're intended to shake us, to wake us up, to cause us to put everything else on hold and see instead what God is doing. What does this kingdom look like? What does it mean for the kingdom to belong to our Lord? Well, let's consider these things this morning. Again, the topic, the title is The Glorious Reign of Christ. And we're going to see at least three things about this glorious reign of Christ that I think are going to help us to wrap our minds around what's being communicated here. The first is that at the glorious reign of Christ, God's people are enthralled. You see that here. Do you see the 24? Do you see what their response is at this declaration? There are so many things that are happening already here in this text, and I think it's helpful for us to be able to see it and be reminded of it. This is the seventh trumpet. We're jumping in the middle of something here. There's something that's already happening. You should remember going back a few chapters, if we were to look back at uh, chapter 8, the beginning of all, the, the, there were these seals that were broken. And you remember in the first seals, we saw horsemen, and they were, they were a conqueror. There was war. There was death. There was famine. And then martyrs. And then terror. And then, just when you think it's over and we finally got to seven, number seven opens up, and guess what? Now there's seven trumpets. And it's going to keep going. The seven, you, oh, almost we're done. Nope, you're not done. Get ready. <clears throat> there's even more. And you remember as we've been reading through these trumpet judgments, I'm going to need this this morning, sorry. These trumpet judgments. The first had hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. The grass was burned. The second angel sounded his trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. When the third, the creatures that were in the sea that had life died and the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, I'm sorry, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on the earth. The fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so the light did not shine the way that it should. And in chapter 9, you remember we saw a bottomless pit that was opened up. And out of this were these bizarre creatures that some of us talked about. What are these locust-type creatures? They're they're like horses prepared for battle. Their heads uh, were like crowns with gold, and their, their faces were like the faces of men. Hair like women, teeth like the teeth of lions. Tails like scorpions. One thing 
after another, after another, after another. And all of this brings us to the point where last week, instead of just speaking in generalities, the whole world, a third of this, a third of that, it brings us down to counting specific days and two specific individuals and the way that everyone responds to these two witnesses. The drama slows to just consider all of these things. And we were left off last week in verse 14 with the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Oh no. Last time it was a seventh. It was, it was a disaster. A whole nother seven. Now this one is already called a woe. Imagine that dread call in the middle of the night just amplified. What could possibly happen now? What would deserve to be called a woe? What we see and said is the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And I love this so much. You and I, we should should be comforted by hearing this. Because what we would have thought from reading, maybe you felt it even going through these verses, these, these chapters, judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And God, will there ever be a relief? What we finally find is here at the seventh trumpet, something new is happening. Something worthy of praise. And it's something that we should have seen all along where it might have seemed like dread upon dread and we're expecting another dread, yet another thing, what we find is the seventh is a day of something different, which shouldn't surprise us if we've read our Bibles, right? God created the world in how many days? Six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Something something new happens on that day. In Exodus chapter 19, we'll look at it later, there's a trumpet blast and that trumpet declares the presence of God on the mountain. Or you might remember at the beginning of the book of Joshua, when the people march around the city seven days, marching around the city seven times, the trumpets blast. And that moment is, yes, a moment of judgment and destruction on the city, But for those who fear the Lord, that day is a day of victory. That day is a day of hope. That's what we see here. The elders, as they respond to this, what they say is fascinating. They say, uh, the one who was or who is and who was, and if we've read Revelation before, we're expecting something else. Who, Who was, who is, and who is to come is usually what we hear, right? But that's not what we hear here. Instead, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That locates us. That helps us to see where we are in this text. That moment that you and I all look forward to as yet future with hope, they're experiencing That is the moment of Jesus' arrival. And we get this glimpse of it here, although we're going to go back into more 
in Revelation, we're beginning to see what is happening here at the end, what it will look like. They use the word as they praise God, almighty. This is a reminder that God is in control. It emphasizes his sovereign control over everything. And they're able to see that even history itself, everything that God does has this kind of design. That all of the the drama of human history, every thread of your life, every little decision, every pain, every loss, every argument, every celebration, all of it, this moment, we're reminded, is under the control of God. All of it is summed up in Christ, like Paul says in Ephesians. And the elders here, they give a response. They worship. They fall on their faces, and they give thanks. I think we should think about these, because these should be the sorts of responses that you and I have as well. Think about what it means to to fall on your face. Think about the feeling that they must be experiencing in that moment, seeing the glorious reign of Christ. He's arriving and things are are finally being set right. What they do is this response of, of humility. I can't even stand before God. I don't have the ability, the strength to stand. They fall instead on their faces. That is full of humility, of reminding of the unworthiness of them to stand before God. And that's you and I too. We don't don't deserve to stand before God. But God is gracious to us. And that's the second thing that we see here. We give you thanks, Lord God. Their first words there are a recognition of the grace of God. All of this is because of who God is and what God is doing. Humility and thanksgiving characterize their worship. Do you know the feeling that you get from an experience like a planetarium? Have you ever been in a planetarium? You know when you go to one of those where they show the stars on the ceiling and their big dome is happening, and a lot of times what they'll do is kind of walk you through the expansive nature of the universe, where you're looking at just how far we are to the moon and then how far we are to the nearest planets, and then you start to see, okay, now that is how far we are to the other stars and to the galaxies and all the other things in the universe. If you've been through that, you might know there's this feeling that you get in there. It's a feeling of, of, of just being small, of being insignificant. And you know, there are some people uh, who have a, have a condition called aparophobia, and that is a, that is a fear of, of the infinite. And for them, that experience of, of feeling like there's so much, there's just an infinity after me, and there's so much beyond me, I'm so insignificant, there's absolutely nothing I can do, that is a paralyzing experience for them. That, that moment that you and I might feel for, for a few moments before the lights come back on, they feel again day after day, and it leads to this sense of, of despair and, and, and depression, like what could I ever do that is significant? And while I don't think that we should be afraid of that, I do think that in some sense, those folks with this condition have a better sense of just how insignificant we are. 
apart from Christ. It is a paralyzing experience for them, but they may understand better than we do if we forget the vastness of everything that God has created. If we only have ourselves to cling to, then we have nothing. We don't deserve anything. We should feel lost and alone. We should feel left floating. But this is the miraculous thing that the Bible is built around. The whole Bible's story is built around this. The creator, the almighty one, who always was and who still is and always will be, Jesus' work was always a surprising turn that was exactly what was needed. It was what was expected, but no one saw it coming. All of the threads of history combined to the victory of Jesus. And they still are today. Jesus is still doing that very work. All of the things that you and I experience all are leading to this moment. This moment of judgment. This moment where Jesus Christ takes the reins of the world. And we shouldn't say that, well, right now, Jesus is out of control of the world, right? We know that he is, but in a unique way. Jesus, there are things that are happening in the world right now that that Jesus does not like, that he is allowing to happen for a time, but we look forward to the day when they will be put to an end. That's the reign of Christ. That's the glorious reign of Christ. These things will stop. And so the response of these elders should be our response as well. It should be worship with humility and thanksgiving. That's our application. That's the thing that we should try to do as we sing together today, as we talk together about these things in community group. How can we be worshipers with humility and thanksgiving? And I'll give you a hint. It's all about grace. It's all about understanding that what we have only comes from Jesus. I hope that we do explore those things together and try to better understand exactly what that looks like. But another piece of this glorious reign of Christ that we want to see here from this text is that at the glorious reign of Christ, the nations are enraged. We see this in verse 18. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged. We were told that this was a woe that this is something bad that's happening, and here we begin to see what it is. For those who do not belong to Christ, this day is a day of woe, and it's expressed here as being the nations, as being those other folks who, who do not know Christ, who are not a part of his covenant people. That is, these folks. We're reminded of places like Psalm 2, where we read, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You hear the echoes here. As the nations are enraged... When God's anointed, when God's Messiah, when Christ, this glorious king, arrives, the response from everyone is not one of joy and worship. The response for many is one of anger and fear. They are enraged. 
What is he doing? And I think the hint can, uh, that Psalm 2 can help us to see is that these peoples, the kings, the other peoples of the earth, they are devising a vain thing. Judgment day will be a day of anger. From God, we're told here that, that he will be full of wrath. This word isn't just the, the word that you could use, the lesser word for anger in grief in Greek. This is a more intense word that's better translated as wrath. That's where God's coming from. God is a God who will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Justice and forgiveness can go together. He's offered the way, but there will be many who will refuse. As we read this morning in our reading, and they will be angry. And they'll be angry for the same reason that you and I get angry. For the same reason that anybody ever gets angry about anything. I had my heart set on this, and something got in my way. That's why anger happens. This is, this is how it was supposed to go. This is how things are supposed to be. And something is blocking it from being. And then anger comes out against that thing that is blocking what we want, what's supposed to be there. The nations of the earth are angry because they devised a vain thing, the psalm tells us, the psalmist tells us. That's why they're angry. Their plans are being stopped. They thought they knew what they wanted to do, and God, in his righteousness, is putting an end to it, and he's saying, no. In that moment of anger, you, you know it, you've felt it. All of the reason and your ability to think through something starts to just drop away. And all of a sudden, it's all about, no, it needs to be right. I've got to set this right. It's a misguided sense of judgment. It takes over your entire world. You felt it. You know it. And this here is the picture that we get of what the nations are going to look like. While God's anger is not sinful, it is perfect. It is wrath against injustice. It is a righteous indignation. That's not, that's not what we see from the nations. What we see here is the same sort of thing that we see in us. People are enraged over having things not go their way. They have a, a project that they, they want to have finished. They have something that's being treasured, and the result is sinful anger. And this, this is you and I as well. But the hope here that we have of the glorious reign of Christ is that all of the unrest, all of the competing interests, all of it will come to an end. You know, I couldn't help but, but reading this passage as we lived through this last week and we saw yet another round of, of folks out protesting and different things going on. You know, we can and we should celebrate good judgments. When there are righteous laws, that's a good thing. And it's, it's great for us to celebrate something like what we saw this week with Roe v. Wade being overturned. We don't want dead babies. That's not something that we want to see. But you and I, would be foolish to pretend like that is an ultimate victory. It's good, and I don't want to say it's not, I don't want to minimize it. But in a text like this, I can't help but minimize it. 
The concerns of the nations are so small. The, the, the change is a good change, but it's going to create more and more problems. The struggle in many ways is beginning. It's going to get harder. There are going to be more things to do on that front. But here we see that while there will continue to be, to be anger, rage, people will continue to want to make their plans and do their things, one day it will all be put to an end. This is the context that you and I need to be able to see all of our, uh, all the conversation, all of our social media, all of, the, all of the, the voting and all the things that we do need to be seen in this frame. The rule of Christ, the glorious reign of Christ that will finally, once and for all, set everything right. Our plans are not God's plans. We see that again and again in so many ways. And I was reminded this week of a, of a parable that you may have heard before. It's, it's the story of a boy who's, who's dreaming, constantly dreaming about the future. And he always wants the next thing to come along. And one day he's given a, a ball of thread. And there's a little piece of the thread that can be pulled out. And he's given this thread and he's told that basically what you can do is, if ever you're in a moment where, where you want something to pass by, where you're tired of something and you want to change to the next thing, you can just pull the thread a little bit and time will skip ahead. And so you can already probably see where this is headed, right? The, the child in, in school is sitting there and the teacher accuses him of daydreaming, like, come on, pay attention. He says, you know what? I don't want to be here. He reaches into his pocket and pulls the thread just a bit and all of a sudden everyone's gathering their books to go home. And he loves it. Celebrate. Don't have to go to school anymore. Every day, you could just pull it a little bit. End of the day, victory, celebrate, have fun, do all sorts of, well, wait a minute, why stop there? You could just pull it and skip school altogether. But then you're at work. Payday's a few days off. That sure would be nice to have a few more dollars in my pocket. Pulls a little more. Marriage, let's make that come a little faster. Children, a little faster. Man, children are hard. Can I be done with this already? course, then he comes to the end of his life realizing that he's never lived his life. All of the things that he thought he wanted to achieve, that next thing, if I could just have, if I could only get to this point, then everything would be okay. It wasn't true at all. It resulted in losing life altogether. And you and I, when we hear a story like that, we hear a parable like that, we can immediately see, oh, yeah, this is not a good, this is not a good power. You don't want that superpower. But we do it all the time. We desire for something to be different, to just get past this next thing, to just be done. You and I are terrible at making plans. Our plans the way we want things to work is never the best idea. What we want instead is to listen to God. We want to hear his plans. Because guess what? His plans for you are what is actually good for you, not just what you think is good for you. You and I will always be struggling and fighting with something here on this world that we just want this little thing to be over, to be done with. 
And what we find on the other side of that is more struggle. Things often get harder as you go along. I encourage you as as a way of application this week to let your plans be transformed by God's grace. We talked about that this morning, about how we try to make plans, but God's are better. The entire idea of us making plans, of wanting to to, uh, do our own thing rather than doing God's thing is transformed when we realize that we don't really deserve anything. Our sinful patterns of life our sinful desires that are still here even after we know Christ, they won't lead us in the right direction. We need instead God's grace transforming. We need him giving his guidance on our lives. We need the almighty, covenant-keeping, faithful God to show us the way. We need to be sure that we are not holding on to something or hoping for something that God would rather strip from us. Because that's what's happening here. God is stripping away the things that the people desire, and they're angry. We don't want to be people who are angry. We want to instead be people who desire only Christ above all things. And that's what we see Third, here in the text, we see that at the glorious reign of Christ, creation breaks open to the joy of God's presence. Here in verse 19, and the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. You hear these sounds of everything falling apart, everything breaking. The the earth is shaking and the sky has already been dropping mountains out of the sky. Everything is shaking here. This is the sort of thing that we expected from the trumpets. The kind of terror. But what we see instead is that this points us to, to the presence of God. Everything about this verse is about the presence of God. All of it. You can see there's a temple. The temple, of course, was the place where God dwelt among his people. The tabernacle, first in the wilderness, and then when they were permanently stationed in Jerusalem, the temple was placed there. And that was the place where God would would come and visit the priests where he would uh, absolve sin and where they would know that God was with them. The temple is the presence of God, but even the ark in the temple. That's, that's the place where the, the glory of God would sit on that seat at the top of the ark, where you know that God is present. And in that ark are the words of God, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, The manna, the staff that budded, these things are God's presence with God's people. And here they are. They were lost, but they're being returned. You can see here, this is God's presence. This is God being faithful. But you know, even the last bit that doesn't seem necessarily to be about the presence of God, I would argue is. 
We read in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 18, these words. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the entire mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people so they do not break through to the Lord to stare, and many of them perish. We know from places like Psalm 102 that we read earlier that this world, creation itself will wear out, the psalmist says, like a garment, like clothing. It's going to wear out. It's going to get holes. It's going to be tattered. It's going to need to be changed. It's going to need to be made new. And here is this moment where you've had all of these terrible things happen, but right here at the end, we have this reminder of God's presence in the middle of all of the craziness. It's actually in that moment where everything is the worst that God makes his present clear and known. And that is a thing that he does on the regular in scripture and in your life and in mine. I love the word that J.R.R. Tolkien puts with this concept. In an essay he wrote on fairy stories, which doesn't sound like it would be really all that interesting necessarily, he talks about this idea and he invents this word that is eucatastrophe. You being a prefix that means good and catastrophe meaning catastrophe, disaster. And he's talking about this moment in a great story where there's this moment where everything has become so terrible and there's this turn There's this catch of the breath. There's a beating, he says, a lifting of the heart. Near to or indeed accompanied by tears. He says, this moment, this sudden joyous turn is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe or an actual bad disaster, bad catastrophe. It doesn't deny the existence of sorrow and failure. Instead, the possibility of sorrow and failure is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat and insofar is evangelium gospel, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Tolkien argues that stories like that, the the sort of fairy story, the big stories, the the fairy tales, the the big stories like that, these have this, this thing that happens in them where there's that moment that things couldn't be any worse. And in the darkest moment is the moment where the very disaster is turned into something good. And it speaks so well to reality. And he argues essentially that we wouldn't want to view this book as a fairy tale 
But we would want to say that why are there particular stories that resound so strongly in everyone's hearts? And the reason is because they're telling a truth of something that's deeper, that we know is real. And that's the moment that we have here in this text. Sorrow and darkness, discatastrophe, it'll happen. In the text here, there are, there are seals and trumpets and bowls to come. We haven't even gotten to the bowls yet. But in the darkness, the deepest darkness, there's another figure in the furnace. There's a catch of breath, a beat and lifting of the heart. It's near to tears, joy pointing his grief. I hesitate so much in a text like this because the temptation is to try to, to, to make it big and there's nothing that I can say that's going to be anywhere near expressing the truth of this thing. As you and I consider and try to think about that moment when everything that we've seen so far in terms of disaster in our lives and in the world is cranked up to 11, 12, 13. but in the middle of it. Every whiff of sorrow in your life, every ounce of hurt, every shade of grief, every frequency of our cries, everything is gathered up and it's held and it's felt with all of its weight and all of its force. The whole spectrum of grief doesn't go away. Instead, it's transformed to the deepest and most poignant joy in an instant. That's the glorious reign of Christ. All of the threads of history, every little decision of your life, all those moments you'd rather not think about. Everything will turn to joy at the presence of God if you know Christ. This day that is a woe, that is destruction, is joy because he is here. Things are finally set right in this moment. And we should look forward to that day, the day of the glorious reign of Christ. We'll be remembering these words this morning as we turn our attention to, to the Lord's table. And we'll be taking this opportunity to, to eat the bread and, and drink of the, of the cup. And we'll be reminding ourselves of just what it is that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then we'd ask that you just let them pass right on by you and take this time to consider the things that you've heard this morning. But if you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you look forward to this glorious reign of Christ, then I want to encourage you to remember that one of the things that we're doing while there are so many symbols at play when we eat this, one is that it is a foretaste of a dinner that's coming, of a meal that we will celebrate with our glorious king that he has brought and accomplished by his body and his blood. Let's pray together.